one, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? So, Kate, I know that you have been involved in a bunch of different things. And hearing that you grew up in a church that was more Southern Baptist than like connectional Methodist, I found growing up that I could be very involved in stuff at my church. And so I was at the church every single day of the week. But I never thought of like broader connectional organizations outside of that. It just wasn't a like opportunity in my brain. So talk to me about anything that you've done in your role as a pastor that is kind of outside of the the local parish in terms of other clergy communities, other conference level things, anything on, along those lines and how you got involved with all of them. Sure. Okay. So the big thing that I do um, outside my local church commitments is uh, that I am now the vice chair of Young Clergy Women International. Woo-woo which uh, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, is a organization of mutual support and solidarity for clergy women under 40 and uh, those non-binary agender folks who uh, experience life being read as clergy women. Mm-hmm. We have about 1,500 members around the world, um, mostly in the United States, but also some in Europe and Asia. Uh, and we are an organization that basically strives to be the safe space where we know that we're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I was invited to YCWI by a friend from and Wesley alum when I was commissioned in 2018. Oh. And um, without YCWI, I don't know that I would have made it through <laughs> the first really? year and a half of ministry. Um, there were my we talked in the bigger episode about how I came into a situation where I was, I was paired with a senior pastor who um, had very different theology from me and from most of the people that we were serving together. And I was really struggling with how to learn my space as a pastor on a large staff. And YCWI was so helpful in just being a place where I could talk through ideas and find resources and um, be assured that like, yes, this is shit that every pastor goes through. Here's how you handle it. Talking through funerals and weddings and, you know, after general conference 2019, um, you know, the Methodist subgroup had a huge conversation about like, how do we facilitate conversations around this in our congregations Mm -hmm. that informed so much of what we ended up doing at St. Paul's. Um, There were, there have been so many, um, so many gifts from that community for me. So in 2021, um, they were asking for folks to come on to consider coming onto the board. And I decided to apply mostly because I knew there were like one, there was like one Methodist on the board at the time. And I was like, there need to be more of us. Um, so I applied, a couple of my friends also applied, and uh, we got in. And what I was unaware of at that point, but was short, shortly made aware of, was that YCWI was founded about 15 years ago by a group of white clergy women. Mm-hmm. And we have primarily served the interests of mainline denomination ordained clergy, which is to say white women. And there was an ongoing issue with um, 
people of color leaving the organization or leaving even our leadership team because they felt like they were not safe in our spaces. Mm-hmm. And the board was had done a lot of work the year before I joined um, thinking about how they wanted to address this issue. They decided they wanted to work with a consultant over the space of a year and we're coming up on like the half to three quarter way point of that year of work um, with Jess Davis, who's who's been uh, really fun to work with and has challenged us uh, in a lot of ways about how not just um, our, our attitudes and our conversation, but our structures um, have mm-hmm. been built in such a way that um, people of color are excluded. So we're having a lot of really great, hard, holy conversations about how we adjust the way we have done business for the past 15 years um, in order to um, not create space, but in order to recognize and receive the gifts uh, that clergy women of color have to offer and to be a safe space for them to offer those gifts. And to be a space that they would want to be in. Right? Yes. Um, And that has been really, really fascinating, deep, hard work. We've rewritten our values. We're rewriting our bylaws. Um, You know, we're looking at radically changing the way that people come onto the board and are nominated to the executive committee where I now sit. Um, All of which, you know, will hopefully help make us a more intersectionally inclusive and anti-racist space. So that work has, has consumed a lot of my life over the past year and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet it is also a place that brings me so much joy and so much comfort and solace. I'm part of like half a dozen different group texts that originated in conversations I had in a YCWI group. Um, You know, those are, you know, I, I met a YCWI member for the first time at a an awards dinner I was at last week. And I was like, you know, we've only ever been internet friends, but mm-hmm. I, I know her, you know, I know her baby's name. I know, you know, the struggles that go with, you know, trying to be um, the parent of a small child in, in a church space. And uh, it was such a gift to be able to see her. And it, it really felt like like I already knew her, even though we were meeting for the first time. And those relationships, those support spaces have been so instrumental in keeping me in ministry and keeping me healthy in ministry um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it, you know, when the opportunity came to, to come onto the board, it, I didn't really have to think very much about it. I was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll put, I'll put my hat out there and see what happens. I will say that part of my attraction to the board was knowing that they were having these big conversations about inclusivity. And there is a, a part of my Enneagram eight brain that is super attracted to big problems to wrestle with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I, I want to solve systemic issues. (laughs) Right. And that feeds into the other big time commitment I have right now is, is the co-chair of my conferences commission on the status and role of women. Um, Okay we call Cosro. Um, that group um, has been inactive in the BWC in my Baltimore Washington conference for the last five years or so, but 
there's another newly ordained, newly provisioned deacon um, who is the other co-chair and, sh- and uh, she and I have have big plans for um, making that organization more um, effective in centering the status and role of women within within the church. That's a tantalizing lead for things to come. <laughs> uh, so let me ask you a question about intersectionality um, mm-hmm. and um, and maybe how intersectionality in one place can lead to intersectionality in more places. Mm-hmm. So I, I have found that uh, there are white spaces, primarily white spaces that were able to become more LGBTQ affirming uh, and welcome and celebrating much more easily than they were able to uh, start their anti-racist journey more systemically. Mm-hmm. Um, and spaces that were much more willing to let women in than to let, let women of color in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I've also found that um, a lot of people who were doing anti-racist work in say 2020 or like really picking up anti-racist work at that time Mm -hmm. also were on a journey to becoming more queer affirming that a lot of that kind of went hand in hand Mm -hmm. and people were, I think in both situations, people were able to recognize the structures of oppression in, Mm -hmm. in the opposite in, in other cases and then be able to apply those things more broadly. Mm -hmm. Have you found, in terms of working with churches that have become reconciling, and I assume in, in terms of working with churches that have done some level of anti-racism work, is there is, is there an easier path to start off on? Is there um, a, a, like is there is it easier to find the oppression that's more visible and start down that road, or do we need to start looking at the oppression that's more institutional and digging that up first? Like, do you have any reflections on on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, at my previous church, when we started our reconciling process, I was really intentional. Number one, on there being a process instead of just a vote, mm-hmm. um, because there were a lot of people who were like, "I need, I need you to have a vote tomorrow," and I'm like, "Yeah, nope." Um, that that will that will only mean that we've had a vote and not and that not that we're actually being inclusive. Um, and the way we designed our process, we incorporated elements of um, anti-racism work. We incorporated um, education about the trans community. We incorporated um, elements of um, disability accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so our reconciling process at, like actually had about like 40% um, queer specific stuff, excluding the trans stuff. Cause that was that I did separate education on that. But the idea was that we wanted people to be aware that all of these things were connected mm. and that being inclusive of one community and exclusive of another meant that you really weren't including anybody. Right. Now, that having been said, there were there were some people who had some confusion about that. <laughs> sure. Um, and there were also, you know, there are ongoing challenges for that church because of the community in which they sit and the privilege of a lot of their membership um, in living into an intersectional identity. But I'm a big believer in eating the frog, eating the whole frog and talking about um queer inclusion, anti-racism, 
disability justice, class uh, issues, all in the same framework, because realistically, they are all interconnected. Mm-hmm. And all of that work is ongoing, right? Like, you know, you can make your facility accessible and then make a check mark, but, you know, are your grounds accessible? You know, mm-hmm. um, do, does physical accessibility equate um, for intellectual and, and um, disability de- or uh, developmental delay accessibility? Um, there are always further paths to go down. So I, I really like starting with the whole, seeing that intersectional hole first and then going down each of those pathways and recognizing that we are not going to do all of the things all of the time, all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, but having having solidarity as the framework from which we operate really helps to open that conversation up into new avenues. And um, it helps, I think, I think the, I think it helps it feel less accusatory and Ooh. more, um, more, uh, developmental is the word I'm going to use. Um, Ooh. you know, if you, people, you know, I did some anti-racism education while I was at St. Paul's and I was working with a group of folks who were about my parents, some of them were my grandparents' age, and they were really struggling with the concepts that were being taught. Um, we were using Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad, mm-hmm. um, and they, the struggle of feeling attacked and the, that, that sort of manifestation of white fragility was really, was really hurting the work we were trying to do. Um, if I had to go back, I would have run that class much differently, but I probably would have included in each section of that work, like how does this impact some other section of intersectional inclusivity to tie it back to work they had already done and felt more comfortable with and to get them to engage it from an angle where they felt like they could, like they were learning and incorporating something, adding on to work they'd already done. That having been said, there are folks who have done much more intentional work around anti-racism. And as a white person, I am not the expert, but this mm-hmm. is how I have approached it in, in white centric spaces. And it's also a learning process with your congregation and your um, your folks. You know, my current congregation has about a third of its membership um, are first generation African immigrants. Their oh, wow. experience of racism is much different than folks who grew up in you know who grew up with a long family history in this country who might have experienced sharecropping, slavery, redlining, and therefore talking about racism and how it impacts that intersectional whole has to look much different. It also means talking about things like, you know, um, queer inclusivity when some of them are immigrating from, from countries where, um, you know, queerness is against the law, um, means you're, you're, you're shaping that conversation much, much differently to your context. I will say that as I do the work of, of, intersectional inclusivity, the space where I am feeling called to is to do more work around sexual harassment and sexual misconduct within the church and holding Mm. 
holding our religious leaders accountable for holding sacred space. Sandra Wheeler, the beloved former ethics professor at Wesley, once said that ethics are the holding space within which the sacred happens. Oh, we are Dr. Wheeler stands on this podcast. And that is amazing. That right? Is quote. Yeah. right. And I have carried that with me ever since. And what happens when we experience sexual harassment and sexual misconduct in the church is that that sacred space is, is squashed, is erased, is violently obliterated. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And often the accused, because of their privilege in the system, are given chances at at redemption, which then turn into chances to perpetrate further harm that mm-hmm. would not have been granted to other people within that system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this happens in the black church, in the white church, in the Korean church. Like this is this is a problem across countries, across denominations. You know, the Roman Catholics and the Southern Baptists. You know, we're yeah. not doing much better in the United Methodist Church. Okay, we are less transparent than we need to be. And we have less resources available to victims than there need to be. And those resources need to be separated from the institution of the church. And that space is, that's, that's the big, that's the big issue that's currently turning around in my brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And that I'm hoping will will shape our work um, with the conference commission on the status and role of women is how do we, how do we create structures to support victims, to hold abusers accountable and to preserve the sacred space within which people can encounter the divine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with creating a space within YCWI that women of color feel welcome and celebrated and like happy to be in. Is exactly. There's also a need to like ensure that that space exists for just every every woman within United Methodism. Yeah. My advocacy work has been less, there, there isn't like an easy title I can give to it, but I have been the the generator of several public letters written to bishops over the, over the last several years. And that will probably prevent me from ever, ever holding any denominational authority, but that's okay. Um, Worth it. You know. Right. Um, where you know, the first one I was involved with was Bud Heckman, who was a clergyman in the West Ohio conference who, who was known as a serial predator and yet, um, was allowed to keep his credentials when he, you know, quote unquote, retired. As part of that just resolution, he was required to take responsibility for his actions. And then as soon as the the just resolution was published, he went on, you know, some public something or other and and started, you know, complaining about how he'd been mistreated and how he'd been misunderstood and how these relationships were, you know, perfectly consensual, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there were four of us who actually wrote that letter, but um, I remember we got a we got a um, a contact from Emily McFarland Miller at Religion News Service who wanted to cover it, and all of a sudden there was this okay who can talk without their bishop getting mad at them. <laughs> Best wishes on finding somebody. And, I guess that somebody was and, you. And, and I was like, I will do it. I will do it. I'm not. I don't know this family. I'm not in this conference. More than happy to to 
to do the thing. And that has slowly brought other pieces and issues my way. Um, Cassandra Lawrence, who's the other co-chair of the BWC Cosro, um, was uh, one of the victim advocates for both Bud Heckman and um, Mark Schaefer, who was our most recent disbarring um, for sexual misconduct in the Baltimore Washington Conference. But the reality is that these things are happening every month. You know, uh, I think is when our bishop came on in 2016, she said every month, at least once a month, she was getting a call about sexual misconduct in a church. Um, And we are not that large a conference. Like we're not small, but we're not like enormous either. So when you think about that and the fact that like there are so many other places where you know, um, the Indiana conference hired a guy who had been fired from a school for sleeping with a student as a, as a local lay pastor, you know, the, the, the infuriating injustice of, of patriarchal misogyny and how it continues to manifest itself within the church as giving second and third and fourth and fifth chances to people who have made it clear that they have not done the internal work. Of, yeah. you know, and quite frankly, I'm on the fence about whether there should be second chances within this work because preserving that sacred space is so important. I, I don't know that personal redemption can equal professional redemption if we're preserving safe, sacred space. Those are important distinctions. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's my personal wrestling with right now. I know other people have other opinions on that, but in all of my work outside the, the local pastorate, what, what happens is, you know, again, Enneagram eight, there is an injustice. I get riled up. I'm like, let's, let's make people aware um, and call people to account and, commit to the hard work of change. And that's, that's where I end up getting sucked into all of this stuff. (laughs) That's actually, that's exactly what happened when, uh, how I got involved with the movement to remove a local Confederate statue, how I started Mm -hmm. it. And when I was pastoring Mm -hmm. is I was like, you know, I just want to do something. And in saying, I want to do something, it became, okay, well, I will do everything. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. there's, um, You know, know your context, know what what your context can support you doing. Um, Yeah. Oh, there's there's so much in this that has has been so great. I have, I think, four questions that I hope are going to be short questions for you. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The first is you said eating the frog earlier. What does that mean? I've never heard that. Okay. So that... um... I think I picked that up from Abby Wambach who picked it up from somebody else. So I'm not sure what the specific origin is, but the idea is that you do the unpleasant thing mm. um, and, and that you, you generally try to do it first. So rather than dragging out the process of, a, of addressing different types of injustice as silos, I believe that eating the whole frog of intersectional injustice as a whole and then using that as as a framework for the work you do down the road is is a better approach to that. I like that. That's good. I'm going to I'm going to take that now cuz mm-hmm. I, I I was thinking of like you boil the frog slowly and I was like, that oh, like God. Right. Yeah. no no no. Gross. Eat the frog. Um 
Do you think that, or have you used in, in particularly Methodist settings, the idea of like ongoing sanctification, moving on toward perfection, that kind of language in tandem with like moving toward intersectional justice? Do you think that's helpful? Are people grounded enough in Methodism to use it? I do think it's helpful. The question of whether or not people are grounded enough in Methodism to use it is an ongoing Right. Sure. Um, I, I find that grounding people in Methodism is an ongoing work for me as a pastor. Um, but I do love the love the language of moving on toward perfection as we talk about creating the communities that we want to see and that we want to experience. You know, the the language I usually use is like, you know, when I, I, I was a kid growing up in a household with two mentally ill parents. Mm. The church was a safe space for me when home often wasn't. And when the church is at its best, when it is doing the hard and holy work we've ca- it's been called to do, we are a safe space for everyone who walks in our doors. So going on to perfection is a really great way to frame that work of being the communities that God has called us to be. Absolutely. Gosh, that stirred up a lot of feelings in me. going to put them down because we got other questions. Um, have in thinking about people doing intersectional work and reminding them kind of of the the justice work they've already done by accommodating, already accommodating, accommodating, uh, uh, including people in their congregation. I think about one of Ethan's churches who has his name is Andrew, right, Ethan? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes. I yeah, am listening. And- I promise. I'm here. <laughs> no, I know. Um, and Andrew, would you say is uh, develop me developmentally delayed or like, do you have a diagnosis that is widely shareable that his family uses? Um, he's got a form of palsy that makes him, you know, physically disabled, but then um, I, I'm not sure if it's a separate condition or if it's related condition, but then he's, also mentally disabled as well. And I would say he's probably, you know, maybe eight or nine years old emotionally, if that makes sense. Yeah. I I think of Andrew and how that congregation like lets him have his seat, you know, is like lets him speak and worship, like already, already does some things to include him. I assume that if he needed to become a wheelchair user or a walker user, like would build that ramp, you know, would make the space accessible. And like, that just makes sense. I think of other congregations that I've done that have been very inclusive of people uh, on the autism spectrum and are like, these are like, these are our kids. These are people that we love. And so is it, do you think that having, do you think that good justice work can come from recognizing that there's already justice work that we're doing in our congregations and we're just doing it out of people that we love? Like, is that something to build upon? Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's the idea. Yeah. So the, the framework I think for, for us is number one, to name the thing they're already doing well. Like, like with little kids, you know, you're like, you you did such a good job tying your shoes. You know, n- now, how about we put on your coat? Like, right. you know, um, the, the starting with the thing they're already doing well, the thing that they have personal experience with and have personal mm-hmm. investment in is a great in to talking about bigger justice issues. Um, this is going on in my congregation right now. We had an outdoor service for our homecoming last September 
And um, someone noticed that we had about a half dozen members who weren't able to join us in the outdoor chapel because they couldn't use their walkers on the grass. Mm. So there's now a conversation about like, how do we create a, a, a wheel accessible pathway to this space and, and accessible seating there? Starting with a problem they already know exists or a solution they've already come up with and then building forward on that is a is a great way to keep them invested and engaged in the work of justice while also maybe opening you know frameworks for you know we just installed a playground at Trinity and one of the things i i i said was you know we're putting this up front because we want the kids to to be engaged in what's going on but we also need to be mindful that we may have kids come in who have sensory sensitivities mm-hmm. How are we going to address that? That's a conversation that we're working through in in the moment. Um, but you know, in creating a space for for neurotypical kids, you know, we got to talk about like what what does this look like for neurodivergent kids? You know, yeah. um, so you're it doesn't they don't have to be big leaps. They can be little little pieces. Um, but making sure that people are always holding that next step in mind is kind of how I like to to sneak in a little bit of justice work into the ordinary work of the church. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. Okay. I have one last question, but I will let Ethan pop in with any reflections or any questions he has before I ask my last one. Nope. You go for it. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Ethan, for letting us just dominate this conversation. (laughs) That's all good. (laughs) It's like the last time we did this, it was like, yeah, Ethan, uh, thanks for letting the women talk for once. And it's like, no, Ethan is good at listening. (laughs) So my last question is, this all seems like from everything that you've described, um, the the extracurriculars, for want of a better word, uh, really fit into your calling as as a pastor, as an ordained person. Mm-hmm. How do you mark this down on your timesheet? You know, like, do you consider this part of the work that your church is paying you to do? Do you consider this something outside of that? Like, how do you, in terms of balancing that, we all know that ministry is more than like a 40 hour a week job. Mm. But a lot of this stuff is more than like the 10 hours a week that I work on it, right? Mm-hmm. So how how does that look in terms of time management, again, for lack of a better word? So in my previous congregation, I was much better about naming that like, this is part of my work in the work that you pay me to do. Mm-hmm. Now as a solo pastor with a very, very part-time staff, that distinction is harder to make because so much of the administrative work of that church sucks up that, that 40, 50 hours. Yeah. And so part of what I'm discerning right now is how do I move some of that administrative work of the church off of me so that I can do this work that gives my soul joy. Mm. And I think that that's a really important conversation for us to be having in the post-pandemic reality of the church, where pastors are being expected to do more and more with less and less. Yes. Um, realistically, not everything that has to happen in your church has to be staff-driven. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it cannot be staff-driven. <laughs> um, you know, very few churches have those kind of financial resources. Um, so, 
I just had this, uh, this happen. So I'm on leave right now. Uh, I have a month of professional development leave that I'm in the middle of. And right before I left, I met with a 13 year old and her mom who are taking over the weekly communication and the social media accounts for the church. Oh, wow. I have never seen this kid like enthusiastic about anything. But when she walked into my office, like the biggest smile on her face and like she was like all about using Canva to create like a hymn sing uh, ad for the for the uh, website, like you could see like how much she was enjoying getting to use that skill set and, you know, facilitating conversations between mom and the kid about like design choices. And like, I'm just sitting back going like, this is the soul sucking part of my week, but clearly it's like the best part of yours. Yeah. So remembering that everybody should get to do the work that gives their soul joy, Mm -hmm. Um, pastors and congregants alike really helps us again ground ourselves in the identity of who God is calling us to be um and I think that's something that we don't really talk about enough and we need to talk about a lot more yeah oh you've nailed it again you've landed the plane for us thank you so much (laughs) Kate thank you again so much for the main episode and for this episode this has just been a joy to hear your story and hear all you're doing and also just like reflect on on church and ministry and all this that I think in some ways this has been the most nuts and bolts conversation we've had about ministry in a while and that has been wonderful so thank you so much we'll have to have you back on to talk more about where you're at and what you're doing and all that kind of stuff yes please Ethan will you sign us off I can friends thanks for listening this has been a mini-sode of what the hell is a pastor we are Spanx Reebok the dude and the volcano and we will see you next time is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at whatthehellisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to Pillow Talk, merch, and some other stuff. Thanks for listening, and remember, friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet. <laughs>